Praise Jesus. Um, before we get started, I just want to say something because it, I, I should have done a Palm Sunday sermon today. I don't know why I didn't. I was just in the mind of Philippians and this is where I went. But Hoshana, it means save now. It means save Lord, save us. It's, it's, it's kind of a request command. And, and by the time of the first century when Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem. It was very much a political statement. I mean, you know, religion and politics, that never mixes at all, right? And so when the Jews were looking at this Jewish carpenter miracle worker, these were the people who were out in, in the, the, away from Jerusalem. These were the people who saw Jesus doing these miracles. And they were saved now. Come rescue us now. And I am quite sure they had a political intent in this statement. A few days later, what you found were not the people, not the hicks, not the, the people out in the sticks. These were the people who were committed to the religious uh, establishment that was secure in Jerusalem. And those were the people who were shouting, crucify, crucify. What is interesting about this, and what we must never forget, is politics played a huge, humanly speaking, a huge element on both of those days. And we must remember, Hoshana, Hosanna, is a very, I don't want to use the word religious, it's a very sacred word. You're saying what, what Jesus' best friend John said later at the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we need to remember that politicians are not our saviors. There is no political Messiah until the Savior Messiah returns. Don't let us forget that. Oh Lord, we want You to come back. And we recognize that it won't be in any political party. It won't be in any political platform. Although we must be wise and use our minds especially with regards to politics. But right now, Lord, what we need most of all is to understand something that will take some thought. It will take some thinking about what is going on in the passage. And sometimes that becomes uncomfortable. Help us, Lord, to have a measure of thoughtfulness as we go through Paul's argument in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Lord, bless us and make us a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in my last year getting my bachelor's degree. I was in the fourth floor of the library at UC Riverside, and I was working on one of my history papers. I really didn't want to be there. What I really wanted was to marry that cute brunette that I met about two years before. But I was up there and one night, and I was doing my work, and I realized 
Something that has stayed with me all these years later. I realized that my job wasn't to write papers. My job was to investigate what happened and come back and report. Now this seems small, but it was truly a life-changing thought that went on in my mind. I don't remember what paper it was, but I loudly and clearly remember, I don't get to make this stuff up. Media jockeys on both sides of the aisle need a fourth floor UCR library moment. Amen? And the same is true when we come to God's Word. No. It's even more true. Because if I misreport on Custer's last stand, nobody's life is really going to be impacted. But if I misreport when I am looking at God's Word, someone may not make it into eternity. And so we come today to what is perhaps the most debated, if not most important, passage in Philippians. And my job, once again, is not to make this stuff up. It's not to bring in whatever it is that I think about theology to the text. My job is to come to the text and report back what it says. So let's look at our text and see what it in fact says. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll come back and do a part of it tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Therefore, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Tonight, we are going to just focus on the first two verses of these, and then, as I said, on May 12th, we'll come back and tackle the passage as a whole. And as a whole, my summary for this passage is rejoice! Rejoice as you live your life in and for Christ in this world, so that everyone will know to whom you belong. Now for our portion tonight, our big idea is much simpler. Work out what God has worked in you. We will focus, as I said now, on our verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now to start off, I want to join with Moises Silva as he quotes John Frame on the key distinction we're going to make tonight. He's going to show us three not true answers so that we can get to the right one. 
John Frame says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspending because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we do our part, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produce the required results. God works and we also work. But the relation, the third one, is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God working in us, or as I often say, in us and through us and for us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and our working. Don't miss this. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Because God works, we work. Now I've been saying this for years and just not realizing that I've been quoting John Murray. But tonight we are going to examine these two verses and we want to look at what characterizes my work and what characterizes God's work as it pertains to you and I becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so we made a chart. We made a, I made a chart. God's work is characterized by being effective, complete, and free. And my work is characterized by my obedience, my responsibility, and my humility. Again, in one phrase, work out what God has worked in. So let's start where Paul does with our work in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's start. Our our work is characterized by obedience. Notice this is exactly where Paul starts. He says, As you have always obeyed, so now. Now, unfortunately... For many in the evangelical church, this might come a little bit as a shock. What is this obedience stuff? It may surprise you that Paul is talking about obedience. But listen, if the hand decides it doesn't want to obey the head, we consider that person disabled. If we do not obey our head, then we may find that we actually have no part in him. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus says in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this verse ties together intimately this idea of believing, of trusting the promises of God for us in Christ, and obeying the commands of Christ. You see, because the promises and the commands are simply flip sides of the same coin. As a matter of fact, obedience is not optional at all. And it is a misunderstanding of evangelical Christianity to think that prayer and Bible study and fellowship and service outreach are optional. As if making disciple making disciples is just for some super Christians. 
whom you serve is a choice you have for a short time. Which Lord you recognize is optional for the moment. But it will not long be so. And that choice you make, whom you obey, makes all the difference in the universe for you. Which brings Paul to his next point. Our work is characterized by obedience and it's characterized by responsibility. Paul writes, work out your own salvation. Now we know, every one of us here, we are saved by grace through faith. And when you go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you find out that we are sanctified by grace through faith. We are made more like Jesus by grace through faith. However, many in the church have mislistened and have misdefined these two key words so that they are often the opposite of how Jesus meant them to be understood. A wrong understanding of faith, for example is under the idea, oh, just believe. Just believe. Just believe. Well, what does just believe mean? If it means the same as I believe in gravity, then it really doesn't help me very much to understand what's going on in the text. Now, insofar as it goes, that's true. Yes, it's true. I believe in God in a similar way that I believe in gravity. But certainly there must be more than that, right? Now perhaps we could add, as many do, faith means I don't have to do anything. There's no earning. Well, again, it depends on what you mean and how you mean those terms. And of course it's true. We cannot earn our salvation. Absolutely. We should not even begin to think that we can But the vast majority of Christians who have followed their Lord have recognized, along with Jesus' brother James, that if what you believe doesn't change your life, if what you say you believe doesn't make you look different than your neighbors, except that you get up early on Sunday morning, then why bother? It really doesn't make a difference. What does James say? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and be filled, eh, go have a great time. Without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself that does not have works is dead. Now we remember, faith trusting the promises of God is what saves us. And that faith must be able to be seen. Otherwise, what does it mean? If you believe, then you will be willing to clothe the naked and feed the poor. And the risk that's involved in doing these things will seem small to you in light of God's ability to work for you. That's why if just believe is something fuzzy... If all you've done is learn to parrot a few key sentences, then you will have very little comfort on your deathbed. I cannot tell you how many people I have visited on their deathbed who were able to parrot a few nice-sounding evangelical sentences, but I walked away 
not knowing, just unsure, and praying, God, I pray that you save them. And that's a sad place to be, to have the sum of your life seen like that. Instead, the author to Hebrews clarifies what biblical faith looks like. Without faith, it is impossible to please him forever. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And it's this verse, along with others like 2 Corinthians 1.20 and 2 Corinthians 7.10 and many others, where I get the idea that faith is trusting in the promises of God for you in Christ. You must just believe a specific content. You have to know that Jesus is who he says he is as presented in the New Testament. And you must have trust. Your life will look different if you believe that God rewards those who seek him. Why? If you believe that God rewards those who seek him, you will seek him. And it will be obvious to those who are looking on. My friends, I'm not teaching anything new. This is what Christians have taught for 2,000 years. Let me give a marriage illustration. Two people, legally married, are married no matter what their relationship looks like. You can have two married people living in the same house but never speaking to each other, and they are, in the eyes of the law, married. But you would hardly call them that. Instead, what you would want to do is urge them. Work out the reality of your marriage. Be married. Act married. Live married. Talk. Enjoy. Live in such a way that people can't mistake to whom you belong. That's what marriage is all about. And we, the church, are said to be Christ's bride. So be married, act married, live married, talk, enjoy, live in such a way that people can't mistake to whom you belong. We are gloriously saved by grace through faith, apart from anything that we could do or not do. We must must stand on that. And this kind of faith will look different than the person who doesn't give a rip. Alex Motier goes further. The salvation Paul refers to here is a possession to be explored and enjoyed more fully. Enjoyed more fully, certainly, than many do today. And this is what he believes it means to work out your salvation. And my friends, let's be honest. It's hard in this world It is so easy to be distracted in this world in which we live where we have stuff and we have circumstances and we have relationships that are pulling us in every direction. Let us find an anchor. Let us find the anchor and go back to it over and over and over again so that it oozes out of us and people will see to whom we belong. That's the first step. But then, we also need to define grace. Now, again, 
one of the mistakes we make is we simply think of grace as, oh, everything will be all right. There's grace for that. Well, in so far as that goes, that's correct. That's, that's correct. But something else is needed, or all that you have in this idea of grace is some fatalism. What will be, will be, que sera, sera. A large percentage of the American church, in fact, has this. But others will add something to that. They'll say, well, grace is this mysterious gift, this undeserved gift. Because God thinks well of you or because something magical happened when you prayed or got baptized or walked forward down an aisle or whatever it is that you think. Well, again, there is some truth here. But can a thoughtful Christian, can someone who wants to go into God's Word, can they be satisfied with this? What does this kind of grace do for you? Grace is a word that means God works through you for His glory and your joy. Grace is a word that describes God's power at work. Yes, it's a gift. Absolutely. You don't deserve it. And there's nothing you could do to deserve it. It's a gift. But it's also, that gift is God giving you power to bring glory to Him. Which brings us to our third characteristic of our work. Our work is to be characterized by obedience, is to be characterized by responsibility, and it's characterized by humility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we are going to experience the growth in Christ-likeness that comes by grace through faith, then we are going to need a large dose of humility. Now one way of describing this kind of humility throughout God's Word is the word fear. So what is this fear that Paul calls us to have in relationship to God? That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, it's the same idea that is found almost from the beginning to almost the end of the Bible. For example, in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. I want to be separate from that evil. I don't want to go near that evil. I hate that. That's a big part of what it means to fear the Lord. Pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Or you can Go to the verse I alluded to earlier in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, note, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. In other words, because we have these promises, we will have this fear of the Lord. And this fear of the Lord is going to motivate us to put away evil from us. The point of fearing the Lord is that you look at all the scary things on earth, all the things that would tempt you to disobey God and not trust His promises, and realize that your relationship to God is more important to you than obeying money. Or trusting in whatever it is that you trust to make you 
beautiful or strong or, or popular or, or whatever it is that you're coveting. Those things are no longer scary when we see them in light of how big God is. The point of fearing the Lord, according to Don Carson, is that we seek His approval more than the approval of anyone or even everyone else. We play for an audience of one. And when you do, you will make the decision. I would rather suffer whatever consequences the world will give me instead of suffering the embarrassment of disgracing my Lord. This kind of life takes humility. It means you will take your eyes off yourself. It means you will live fear and trembling, not because of the enemies are so strong, but because you know that your God is so glorious. You would rather die than make Him look small to your near ones. Because when we sin, we and those around us who see us sin recognize that we are thinking less of God. And that, that is something that we should consider in our own minds as something to be avoided at all costs. And this kind of life takes power. Power that can only come as a gift. Power that can only come as something that God does in us and through us and for us that accomplishes His kingdom purposes. And not necessarily mine. Make no mistake, when we are living by this kind of grace, we will live the kind of life that works out what God has worked in. And the other side of this coin which we will get to now, is we only work because God works. You can do nothing apart from Him. Let's go back to our passage. Starting again, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. First of all, we see that God's work here is characterized by effectiveness. It is God who works. Who is the one who works? It is God who works. Here's the other side of the coin. The Bible teaches that, the, that Jesus, that God is sovereign. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So one way of looking at this is everything we just said from verse 12 can be, a, can be brought together in Jesus' phrase, abide in him. How much can you do apart from Him living and animating you? Nothing. It is God who works. Period. 
And it reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, everything you have and everything about you is a gift of God. Therefore, give it back in glory to Him. And use it to serve men in recovery. To serve little snot-faced kids. To serve the people who can't do it themselves. What do you have that wasn't given to you? Nothing. Not a nix. Zilch. But you know what? This is encouraging. This is good news, my friends. That means you and I don't have to make this stuff up. We don't have to write it out ourselves. It's God who works in me and through me and for me. And more important than that, it's God who works for His glory and His kingdom. And He just happens to be that He wants to have me working alongside of Him. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. You can work because God works. You don't have to put it on yourself. You just take a step. And you know that He is the one who's giving you the strength. He is the one who's giving you the direction. He's the one who gives you the desire to take that step. You, my friends, can rejoice because it, God works, you can work. God's work is characterized by effectiveness and it is characterized by completeness. God works in you both to will and to work. Now, I told you, we're, this is a thinking sermon. This is analyzing what Paul is saying. So let's stop and think about this. In order for you to do something, what do you need? Well, first, you need the will. You need to decide that you're going to do it. You need, it's, a, it's a conscious decision. I'm going to do this. And then, what do you need after that? Well, you need the strength in which to do it. You can decide all day long. You want to fly, but jump off a cliff and you'll see how much strength you have to fly. What you need is the effective power. And Paul here says that God provides both desire and doing. You want to pray? Then spend time praying. You want to pray? That, that's, that's in your heart? Oh, you know what? I need to pray. Then go pray. Because that is a sign. That is, that is a notice. God is saying, I'm putting this desire in your heart. So now, you stick out your foot and you go and you move forward in prayer because He's giving you the power to do it. So do it. You see that person over there who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Who put that thought in your head? Was it Satan? No. It was Jesus. And Jesus puts that will in you. So what do you do? Well, you put your foot out. You take a step. And He's giving you the strength to do it. God's power accomplishes kingdom purposes apart from anything you deserve you don't deserve it that's the grace part it's a gift but it's also power because if it's not 
power, if it's not God's power to accomplish kingdom purposes in your life today, then it's not Him from beginning to end. And at some point, you can pat yourself on the back. And the one thing God will not allow is anybody else to get the glory. We give Him the glory. This is how I think of it. The Bible says we must work. Pick pick a verb. Pray, read your Bible, fellowship, service, outreach, whichever one you want, whatever command you want to think about at this moment. Okay, so the Bible says work. So, get off your rear end and work. Do it. The Bible also says that God is sovereign in all things. So, trust. Trust. So, you, you get off the couch, you put your foot out, And you start to take a step. And while you're taking that step, you recognize that it is God who has given that to you. So you say, praise Jesus. I wouldn't have wanted to take this step if he hadn't put it in my heart. I wouldn't have been able to take this step if he hadn't put it in my heart. And even when you misstep, even when you blow it, that's still a part of God's plan. (laughs) Why? Because I need to be humbled. I need him to work in me and through me and for me. And that doesn't mean nothing but victories. What it means is that I need to grow in dependence. I need to grow in my ability to look to Jesus and recognize him working in me. So work. The Bible says work. The Bible says God is sovereign. So trust and use biblical terms to describe biblical teaching. Once again, Alec Motier says this. He says, The Christian life, growing in the likeness of Christ, is a blend of rest, what I'm calling trust, and activity. Not alternating from one to the other, but a blend in which at one and the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently, for example, in what God is doing within, and actively pursuing, for example, the duty of being blameless. It's at the same time. Now, let's be realistic here. Are you ever going to get that nailed down perfect? No. There's going to be times that you're going to be resting more, and there's going to be times that you're active more. And the point isn't to be perfect anyways, is it? The point is to be going to God, going to His Word, finding out what He's saying, and then walking by faith, trusting that He will do these things through you. But There's one more crucial idea. And I say crucial, and I mean absolutely central. Fundamental to every single thing I've said so far tonight. There's one more crucial idea that we need to understand. And that is, God works in you and through you and for you because it makes Him happy. Because He likes to do it. God works in you not because you're so smart, not because you're so well-connected. I think I told you this story one time. I, I told a friend of mine, you know, wouldn't it be great if Michael Eisner, who was the CEO of Disney at the time, and Steve Jobs, who I don't need to tell you who he is, wouldn't it be great if they became Christians 
the wiser older brother to me said, yeah, God could do a lot for them. (laughs) That is exactly right. God doesn't need Disney on his team. God doesn't need Apple computers on his team. But God is happy to have you on his team. God is God rejoices. It makes him happy. God's work is characterized by effectiveness, is characterized by completeness and freedom. God works in you, Paul says, for his good pleasure. The whole work of salvation is for God's good pleasure. The whole work of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is for God's good pleasure. It makes Him happy to save you. It makes God happy to live through you. And whatever your version of the happy dance is, you should be doing it right now! Woo! Praise Jesus! And as you, contrary to your Baptist heritage, learn how to dance, you will work out what God has worked in. My friends, this is deep mystery to be sure. And we will never comprehend the mystery happening in these two verses. But we can take steps to work out those things that God has commanded us to work out. Those things that God has promised to enable us to do. And when we do, when we take these steps of faith, when we trust that God is before us and God is behind us and God is beside us, we will rejoice And others around us will see that we, by God's grace, are working out what He has worked in. Oh, Jesus, give us Your grace. Give us, God the Spirit, to live and move through us for Your glory, for our joy, and the growth of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.